Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Corey Rosen, and you're listening to The Story Podcast. And today I have a really cool, awesome dude. But before we get into the episode, if you really like this podcast and what I'm doing, please be sure to like, follow us. If you're watching on YouTube, subscribe. It really does help us out. And if you want to boost us up in the rankings on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, please be sure to rate us and leave a review. With all that said, we have a really cool guy, Mr. Luther Tyree. Luther Tyree is a spirited, smooth jazz, blues, fusion guitarist who enthralls audiences with his dynamic technique and soulful melodies. Luther developed a passion for rock, blues, and jazz guitar at the age of five in Pittsburgh, PA, where he acquired his first guitar at 11, oh, sorry, 13 years old and never looked back. After completing a 20-plus year military career, Luther attended the Harrisburg Area Community College music business, and the Berkeley College of Music Guitar Specialist programs in order to reacquaint himself with today's musical landscape. Luther graduate from both programs with highest honors and has now embarked on a new mission to enable people to gather and relax together in harmony through their shared love of music. His latest musical endeavor has been to add the growing Yacht Club, sorry, Yacht Rock style to his already broad repertoire. Additionally, Luther has been assisted the Lebanon Valley Council of the Arts and the Community of Lebanon Association in reviving the live music scene in the city of Lebanon. As a result of his efforts as a player and a booking agent, live music is set to return at lunchtime twice a week in downtown Lebanon. Luther has become a driving force on the arts and music scene in Lebanon, and there is surely more success ahead. How are you doing today? Doing well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so you mentioned uh, in the bio that you got started rather rather early on in your life. Yes. What were your biggest influences, or what song or what artist really grabbed you? Uh, the first artist that really grabbed me, I think, was was probably probably Jimmy Page. Uh, as a young kid in Pittsburgh, uh, in inner city Pittsburgh. Rock music wasn't what everybody was listening to, but mm. I had someone in my family that that was their whole thing, was listening to what we now call classic rock. And so at the age of about five or so, the first time I remember hearing music was I heard Led Zeppelin, and I heard the screaming guitar, and I said, wow, what's that? And that's when I said, hey, that's, that's what I want to do. And it, and it took off from there. And so... You said you picked up your first guitar. Did you play other instruments before then? or? Yes, I started playing uh, because they wouldn't let me play a guitar because I was too young. That, at that time, they wouldn't let you play a guitar unless you were about 13 or 14 years old. Wow. So I started at nine years old on the clarinet. And I played clarinet until I was, played clarinet until I was about 12 or so. And I said, well, hey, I, now can I have a guitar? And school said, no, we don't do guitar lessons. So uh, here, play this saxophone. You've been playing clarinet long enough. You can play a saxophone. So, uh, but not to be deterred, I saved up my money for my paper route. And I begged and I borrowed and I got my first guitar. I managed to buy my first guitar and started learning and got my parents to get me lessons. And so I kept up with my clarinet and my saxophone. But that's when I started to actually play guitar. So did you start immediately playing uh, Led Zeppelin and, and that kind of range? or? Yeah, well, the things we started at first were uh, we started 
learning, believe it or not, Leonard Skinner. That's fair. And uh, you don't think you don't think a guy like me playing Leonard Skinner at that time wasn't people were like, "What are you doing?" Right. So uh, that's where that's where we started, and uh, we started a we started a band, and off went off to the races. And how was it to be able to plan gigs and get gigs and play back then? It was. Uh, it was a good learning experience. wasn't wasn't like it was wasn't like it is now. Uh, it was it was uh, it was the best way to say it. It was it was really different. Uh, things have shifted. Things have shifted quite a bit. The talent pool has the talent pool has really increased. And while there's somewhat of a lower bar to entry, there are so many more people out there and so many more good people out there. I mean, there were good people back then, uh, but you couldn't get. You had to be really good to get a gig back at that time. Uh, and now, now you have to be good, but you don't have to be a superstar. Like, right. like back then, you really had to be a superstar just to get a gig. Now you can be good and get a gig. So from what then happens? You start your own band, you start playing out. What then? Then uh, we, started to have some, we started to have some success, but... Uh, I graduated high school. It came time to graduate high school. It was like, okay, go to college. So we all went our separate ways because I went to college. Uh, I was the only one on our band that went to college, and everyone else decided to go into the trades and, and do other things. And you know, we had to eat, and I was, I was going to college. So I went to college, and I kept playing, but I didn't play out. I didn't play in any groups or anything. I focused on, okay, I have to build a career. You know, At that time, you know, your parents were like, get a real job. Right. You can't so uh, – and I ended up, uh, through my adventures there, I ended up not only meeting my wife, who I would marry some years later, but I, uh, I ended up in the Army. Hmm. And so I ended up uh, doing, a, doing quite a long career in the Army. And was that a, a choice for you? Was that, was that an event that happened and you decided I had to join the Army? Or? Uh, yes, it was a... It, uh, Things worked out. I always wanted to try to come from a family that all the men in the family have served in the army or served in the military since the end of the Civil War. Oh wow! On both sides of my family, That's so there was a there was a great expectation that as I came down the pike, I would do something like that. So I decided uh, to try ROTC because I was in college already. I was the first person to graduate college in my family, so uh, I decided to look at ROTC to see what it was about, and it just. It just happened that I took to it, and it, and it worked out, and it worked out, and I signed up, and I never intended to do almost 30 years in the Army. I never intended to do that long, and uh, it, just, it just happened. It just, before I knew it, before I knew it, it was a point where, okay, it doesn't make sense to retire, try to get out now, and so I ended up, I ended up staying. So what you do in the Army? Uh I was an I was a combat arms officer. I I since I was in so long, I did many. I had many different specialties because uh, I, like I said, I really I really enjoyed being in the army. It was a, it was my other passion. Mm. Uh, I was being being in the military and doing that uh, doing that adventurous kind of stuff. So I was ultimately I ended up as an infantry officer, but I was a I was an armor officer. I was a tanker during Desert Storm. So you know M1 tank, all that stuff, and. Uh, I did some time in the artillery. I did some time in intelligence. So I did a bunch of, but for all intents and purposes, for the purposes of our audience that probably doesn't know very much about that stuff, I kicked doors in and blew stuff up. 
is what I did in North. So how do you think that experience has influenced you or impacted you in terms of your musicality, if at all? Well, it's definitely impacted me. Uh, all, it has very much shaped my music and the way, the way I approach not only the non, the other than playing aspects or performance aspects of music, but uh, I've gotten exposed to music from all over the world and people listening to music and doing music from all over the country. I mean, you can, you can definitely tell that I, was, I served with people from all over the United States and all over the world because of different music that I know about, different music that I like. And the thing that has really benefited me from the military in music is the, the simple stuff. Be there on time. Make sure your equipment works. Make sure you're rehearsing, you know what you're going to do. Make sure you have a plan for everything. Make sure you have a backup plan in case something goes wrong. Uh, how to do, how to plan things out for, for whatever it is you want to achieve. Those things are things that musicians really don't do all the time well, and that's something that we just did. It was it went without saying that you had to do that. So that has that has I've gotten gigs because I'm there and I'm ready to go, and that that has stood me in very good stead. As I say, that's a conversation we've had many times on this podcast. Is the things that will make you a more successful musician is being on time having your stuff together, knowing what is going to happen, having a backup plan. Oh, if my guitar string breaks, I have this other guitar. Right. Or if this quarter inch doesn't work, toss it aside, grab another one, whatever. Right. Exactly. And uh, so, and ironically, I, I instructed a little bit. I taught a little bit at Hack, uh, both while I was a student and afterwards. After I did about five years, I ran their, uh, I ran their performance day for both semesters, uh, both spring and fall semesters, for about five years after I left and after I graduated. And those things, it's funny, musicians are very, seem to be, they seem to be opposed to doing those things. Uh, because I would tell them, I'd say, okay, you see, they're like, how did you get this laid out? Well, this is what you have to do. And so they'd see you do, they see you do these things and they see it as, uh, they see how that you're successful at it. And it doesn't take any talent to make sure you've got a spare cable in your bag. Make sure right. you're there on time. And they still don't want to. They said it once. They said, yo, Beyonce doesn't do this. Beyonce doesn't do a sound check. It's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, Beyonce, well, Beyonce's done it enough times that she, you know, she already has her people doing that for her. And she's Beyonce. And she's Beyonce. That's also, that's also another fact. You're... Granted, there are really, really, really talented, extremely talented people. But when you're starting out on a local level, be there for your sound checks, it, and that's gonna that's gonna make the venue that you're going to love you even more. Exactly. And half of the battle of being a musician is getting good relationships with your venues, so that way you can keep going back to those venues. If you cut, if you do a bad at a venue, that venue might not book you again. Exactly. No matter how well you play. Yeah. Exactly. If you're not a good person to work with, they're going to cut you out because there's, like you said, there's now a million and five other people they can right. choose from. Exactly. Who They may not be a superstar, but they will play well. They will perform well. They will be there. They'll be easy to work with. And people people will take that over a diva that's really, really good to play with anytime, any day of the, of the week. And 
great example of that is Axl Rose mm. from Guns N' Roses. That guy, they do nothing but complain about how he shows up for this shows up for the show two and a half hours late, drunk, and he keeps doing it. And he's Axl Rose. I mean, one right. of the best front men that has come along in the last thirty years. But he has a problem getting gigs sometimes. So right. that's just the way it is. So I'm curious. You've been uh, in completely different cultures than the U.S. What has been? What was one of the most shocking differences to you? Um. Well, certainly the Middle East is. Uh, Middle East is a. They do things very differently than what we're uh, than what we're used to. But they have incredible similarities. I mean, and I would say, I would say at a basic level, we are much more, we have much more in common than we do, different. than we do different. And uh, it would be, it would, it would amaze people, in fact, to see how much we actually have in common with Arab, with people in the Middle East, the Arabic, uh, Arabic cultures, than we, than we think we do. They would really, they would really be shocked. I mean, they, we have a lot of the same values, amazingly. Culturally, we they they enjoy music and dance and all those things right. just like just like we do, and they they appreciate what we do. They appreciate our stuff, and their stuff, believe it or not, even culturally is very similar to what we to what we do. So they and they're very they're they're very family oriented. They're extremely yes, family sir. oriented. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that was one of the first things they asked us when we would when we got there. Is because uh, I was uh, I was an embedded trainer, so we lived with the uh, Afghan ar- army for about a year, and uh, that was one of the first things they asked us when they got there. Show me, show me a picture of your family. Are you married? Show me a picture of your family. Where do you live? And I was. They told us that would be the case, but I said that doesn't that right. doesn't seem to sure. track. <laughs> and that was no lie. That was the first. That was the first thing they wanted to know. They wanted to know about my wife. They wanted to know about my parents and 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 where I came from and what my what my what my background was and where I lived and and they they were very very interested in all of that and were very happy to share, you know their back their backgrounds and where they were from. So that's the. And then their music again. Their music has at a basic level has very. Has a, has a lot in common with what, with what we, with what we listen to, and it's easy to and it's, it's easy to take those influences and put them into what you're doing and have something unique. And I mean, they really like death metal, believe it really? or not. Yes, the Afghans. They are were really they were into death metal almost on the level that the Europeans are into death metal. And that I said I. What in the world are you guys listening to? And they, uh, yeah, because they found out I played guitar. They wanted me to help them because they were uh, our interpreters had a band, and it was their plan to have this band and to uh, hopefully go to the states one day. And I said, okay, okay. Well, what is it you want to play? And they were, I mean, head banging thrash in English too. In English, they said we're not going to really do it in in because uh, they have two official languages, Dari and Pashto, are their two official languages. And they said, "No. We're doing this in English and we're banging our heads." That's <laughs> that's that's crazy to think about. Yes. So, yes. did you ever get a chance? Hey, well, here's a question. Uh 
this might seem dumb, but I guess they had they had to have electric guitars and stuff like that over there. Yes, but not where not where we were, not on the uh, not on the the FOB, the Ford Operating Base that right. we were on. They didn't because we were so high, we were so high up in the mountains and so close to the border, and it was an active combat zone mm-hmm. that while I snuck my guitar in so I could play it on headphones, I snuck a small electric guitar in that I managed to to, to bring with me so I could practice. Um, they they didn't have any of that stuff. They didn't have the wherewithal to have any of that stuff for them on the base. Uh, they all had that kind of stuff at home. Now we had a little bit uh, in, in the chapel on our part of the base, we had, uh, there was there was one keyboard and one small amplifier and one guitar that had seen better days. <laughs> uh, but that was, that was it as far as that goes. The Afghans, the Afghans couldn't have any, anything like that. It just the situation just wouldn't support it. Right, of course. And you want to keep quiet, right? Yes. Yes, there was a, I mean, in the daytime, you could make all the noise you wanted. That wasn't the, uh, that wasn't so much of an issue. Now at night, at night was when nefarious activities started happens, happening. So that's when you wanted to be as quiet and dark as you could. That's crazy. How do you deal under that pressure? You just, I was, I was fortunate because I was, I had 20 plus years in the army before I had gotten to that kind of a deployment. Uh, because I never thought in a million years that I would, that I would actually, that when I went, when I actually went to a combat deployment, that it would be that I wouldn't be on a tank. Uh, I never expected to use the skills that I had on foot to be. I mean, you know, we flew in at night. Uh, we flew in at night, about 50 feet off the ground, through the mountains, for 45 minutes, and they dropped us into a landing zone, and there we were. Right. And I never, like I said, I never, and we went from zero, about zero or roughly where we are in, uh, from our distance from sea level here in central Pennsylvania is about where the air, the same level that the air base was, the main air base at Bagram was. But we went from there in 45 minutes to 8,000 feet elevation. So when you get off the bird, you cannot breathe. Wow. And, uh, and so, you know, in the middle of the night, you get off the chopper and we came under fire immediately when we got off the chopper. And then you find out you can't breathe because you've got your gear and you don't know what to do. You can't see because it's dark. You can't really hear your radio because the helicopter's running. Uh, but fortunately, I, was an ex- I had 20 years in the Army before that happened. So I had, a lot of, I had a lot of experience and a lot of time and a lot of really good people that trained me over the years to, uh, to be ready for that. So... I was fortunate enough to not, you know, panic in the, in, in the initial stages. And then you just, I mean, I did it for a long time. So I was, you're just, you just, in. yeah, you just, you just, you just knuckle down and get through it. That's incredible. Did you ever get a chance to check out any of the native instruments there at all? No, no, I did not. Uh, Again, that was just uh, except for a drum. I I saw one one of the guys, uh, one of our interpreters had a drum that he brought in that they had uh, that they had made in his village, and that was pretty cool to see. And it looked just like you would think the one of those things would look. Um, but 
like I said, we didn't, we didn't get a chance to really do, because our area was active, so we didn't really get a chance to do right, any, right. Of that, any, any of that stuff. Like we would have liked. It would have been, been nice to get a chance to just breathe for a minute. But anytime you wanted to do anything like that, it was, you had to make sure you had gone down to, uh, went back to the main air base, because that was a little more secure. And that base was huge. So uh, that was, you could go back there and relax a little, relax a little bit more. But once you were up in those mountains, you had to be, uh, it was game time. What's one of the most insane stories you have from the military that you're allowed to tell? That I'm allowed to tell? Oh, my God. There are too many. There are, there are, uh, that's not, I wasn't, I wasn't prepared to answer a question like that. There is so, there is so many. I'm trying to think of, uh, think of something, uh, think of something funny <laughs> that happened that's, uh, that would, that would, that would be appropriate, uh, that would be appropriate to tell. Uh, you can tell anything, yeah. just no cursing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, uh, oh, okay. So we were on a, uh, we were on an exercise. We were in Germany in the uh, early '90s, uh, shortly before shortly before Desert Shield kicked off, and uh, we were on an exercise. We were driving through the uh, driving through the countryside, uh, doing our doing our training, and uh, we were rolling. Very, we were on the, on an asphalt road, moving very slowly, and uh, oh no, no, I'll tell this story. So we were driving a, uh, we were driving down, we were driving down the autobahn doing a, doing a road march that we usually did every once in a while. We get on the tanks, a whole division, three hundred tanks would get out and roll down the autobahn. That's kind of okay. Cool. And an M1 tank will do, M1 tank will do between forty and sixty miles an hour. Okay, just put it that way. So we're rolling down the autobahn, and these people, these Germans want us to get out of the way. Now we're all the way over on the shoulder. You can get around us, but this guy decides he's going to tailgate us to get us off the road. All right. How do you get a tank? He's tailgating a tank among a whole bunch of other tanks. Now remember, we're not just oh out there God. by ourselves. And uh, there's 50 yards between each tank on this. So I mean, they could have gone around us. So he gets behind us. Now an M1 tank has a turbine engine, right? Mm -hmm. So that exhaust is like hotter than a heat gun coming out of the back of the engine, coming out of the engine. Okay. So he pulls up his brand new Mercedes 190E oh at the time. And he pulls it up, and he's tailgating us, right? So it's like taking a heat gun to the front of your car. And he's waving and moving, and I'm turning, I'm looking back at him from the turret, like, you really think I'm going to move? And after about three minutes of this or so, you start to see these little flakes hitting his windshield because he's so, he's so close, we can't see the front of his car, but I can see his windshield. And you start seeing these little flakes hit his windshield. And when he finally backs off and tries to get around us, he has burnt and blistered the paint on the front of that car at least six inches back from the grill all over the front of the car. Oh, my was God. Hilarious. And I said, this was a Mercedes, yeah. a 190E in, in 1990s. You know how much money that car cost? A lot. And he, bur he burnt all the paint off the front of that car. It was hilarious. Oh, my God. Yeah, but we're just, we were just looking at him. And he, I know he didn't realize it. I know he didn't realize it yet. I'm like, I can't wait till you stop. I can't wait to you get out of your car and look at it and you're like, yep, yep. Yeah, by the way, never tailgate a tank. <laughs> 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 what? Especially just like, what would you say, 30 of them? 300. 300. Oh my gosh. Could you. Uh, props to his pride, I guess, or his courage or whatever. That's. I mean, well, to be, to be fair, to be fair, you would. 
an M1 tank is big and powerful and everything, but as big and powerful and heavy as it is, when you look at it and see it up close for real, it doesn't look like it's as big and heavy and powerful as it is. It does look big and heavy and powerful, but it's not what you would, it looks kind of sleek for what it is. So you really don't really understand that, okay, this thing is 68 tons. It's got a 1,500 horsepower engine in it. It's the, it's the, it's the what is it? Is, that's a top line tank for the U.S., isn't yes. it? Yeah. yeah. And, and it, was, it was fairly new when, because you're talking 1990, it came out in 85, and we had the brand new upgrades, so we had the larger gun and the more powerful engine. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, I, I've had, I had it up to 60, 65 miles an hour on the road. That's got to be kind of fun, though. Yeah, but I mean, mean, there's no seat belts or anything in those things. So it's like if something goes wrong or you hit something or turn too hard or anything, you're leaving the turret. Wow. (laughs) Uh, You will fly out of the vehicle. Um, Or you'll hit something inside and then nothing in there soft. Uh, So, you know, but I mean, yeah, those people didn't really realize. And the German Leopard 2, their tank, Mm -hmm. was fast, too. Sometimes we'd race. (laughs) <laughs> we'd have, yeah, we'd have the... Uh, Drag racing. Yeah, yeah, we would. We would because we had a partner unit that was a German army unit was partnered with us. And so every once in a while, you know, the, our colonel and their colonel would say, hey, you know, blah, 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 get a couple of cases of beer on the line and all this food and everything. And they would say, okay, we're going to... And we'd bring two, bring one of our tanks and one of their tanks and drag race them. That's... that's I wonder what, what a cop would do. <laughs> oh, no, we did, it on, we did it on the base. Right, of we course. On the base. But I'm just curious. Yeah. Like, what would a cop do if they just saw just two tanks? Like, what are they going to do about that? Exactly. They're not, they, they, would, they just would go, okay, it's, you know, it's the Army acting a fool. <laughs> right. like, don't, cry, don't, don't, don't hurt anybody. <laughs> that's that's, that's got to be really fun. Yeah, yeah. So where else are, where else have you stayed besides Germany? Have you uh, docked in Japan or France or anything? No, I was always, uh, until the Middle East, I was mostly a Europe guy. Gotcha. So we did, so if I wasn't in the States, I was in Europe. And then I did uh, quite a bit of time as full-time National Guard right here in Pennsylvania. Oh, nice. And then that allowed me, that allowed me to go a lot of different places in uh, not only the state of Pennsylvania, but all, a lot of different places in, uh, in the United States that you wouldn't think you'd, uh, you'd go to. And so... Uh, and again, I mean, so yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd sneak a guitar along. They used to tease me all the time because every time we'd go someplace, I, I had some kind of guitar with me. And so I would go and uh, I would go, you know, play an open mic night at a place we were already, there was an open mic night in, in, some play, in Minnesota one time. We went up there and, uh, no, sorry, it was Indiana. They had an open mic night. It was down the road from uh, the place we were staying. We went out, there for, uh, went out there for a conference. And it was like, oh, hey, I'm going to go down and... and uh, and uh, the other thing that used to be fun was uh, because uh, one time I was doing some, I was doing inspection work, uh, making sure people were complying with things they were supposed to do. And we had to inspect the band. We had to inspect the Army band, one of the Army oh. bands. And I was the only musician that had ever come through on the inspection. So they usually could do whatever they wanted because no one knew what they were looking at. And uh, that wasn't a good day for them. No, really? Because, right, because, well, I mean, no one knew what they were looking at. So I came out, I made them lay their instruments out, and I went through and looked at their instruments just like you would look at anybody else's equipment. I mean, the band's equipment is, is instruments. Right. And I was, hey, you're not maintaining this properly. This isn't clean. This isn't this. This isn't this. And they've never had anybody go th- went through that knew what they were looking at. So, that must have been nightmarish. For yeah, them. they were, they were, oh, oh. I said, no, 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 no. 
doesn't work that doesn't work that way. No, I I know no, and so <laughs> and so that was a uh, my uh, my colonel almost hurt himself laughing at watching watching this. He was just like he was just shaking his head and just laughing like crazy. He said, he said this is he says this is you know what this is really great. He said these guys are these guys are going to raise their game now because yeah. they have been able to get away with because they would they would do things like. When the army buys, when the military buys stuff, they buy top of the line. Of course. For, for, so, I mean, the, the instrument I remember that first started the problem was they had a brand new, uh, it was a brand new Selmer tenor saxophone, mm-hmm. a brand new Super Action 80. Wow. That horn was six grand. And they had put it away without wiping it down. After taking it out and marching in the rain with it, they didn't wipe it down. They didn't swab the inside. I mean, it was gross inside and everything. So I opened the case and I see this horn. Parts of it are green. The thing's less than a year old. I said, what are you people doing? Right. Oh, my God. And so, yeah. And so so it was like, uh, but nobody even knew to... Nobody even knew what that case was. Right. Oh, is it green? Okay. Yeah. Whatever. So, so, I, so I opened it up and looked at it, and I said, okay. No, 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 no. We're not having this. Uh, and what, what repercussions would they have to face? Would they do laughs or push-ups or what? No, they just, <laughs> you're going to uh, spend a great deal of your time going back and making sure that stuff is clean. Mm. Uh, and so that's what they did. Instead of doing some of the other things they thought they were going to do for the next probably two months, they made sure all their stuff was cleaned and properly maintained, and then we came back and made sure it was, uh, made sure everything was the way it needed to be. And was it spick and span? It was better. It was better. It was better because they weren't like I said. They they weren't. They were so unused to doing, to doing what you needed to do as far as main, as far as keeping your instruments because there and then there's there's keeping your instruments as you and I would keep our instruments and then there's the way the military wants that stuff maintained. Of course. Right. And if you aren't and that's at a ridiculously high level. Yes. So if you aren't used to doing that, the first couple of times you have to do it to that standard, you're not going to get there. Of course. So especially because of the number of stu- the amount of stuff they had. Um, so it was because yeah, because the in the bands in military bands, everybody has to play a second instrument. Mm. So you've got everybody that plays the standard marching band instruments and everything, and then everybody has to play at least one contemporary instrument as well. And so you've got to maintain all your all the marching band instruments and all that stuff. Then you've got to go back and maintain the drum kit, the basses, the amplifiers, the guitars, all of that stuff has to be maintained and you have to make sure it works and make sure everything's clean. Like you don't leave your guitar pedal with a battery in it, the battery leaks. And right. if that happens, you have to take it apart and clean it so it looks like the battery never le- leaked. Well, you and I don't have to do that. Right, of course. Right. So you so they all have to do all that kind of stuff. So if you've got to if you've got to do that for every last piece of your equipment because for the last seven years you've never had to do that. Uh, it's gonna take a little while. It's gonna take a while. So, uh, did you ever get a chance to play with the army bands? No, no, I didn't. Uh, believe it or not, if you're an officer in the military, they will not allow you to be in the band. Wow. Uh, and I went, and we didn't have time. We were going when I inspected them. 
we were going we were going to play. We were going to play. Uh, I think it was the second time we went back. They were like, okay, we got our stuff together now. Let's uh, here's a horn for you. Let's go. Okay. And uh, it just the time we just didn't have time to to do it, but we uh, we wanted to. We wanted to. We just didn't have time to make it happen. I can imagine the military bands are some of the best bands in the United States. That's right. And because uh, I I always grew up watching. I, I was a marching band geek as as a kid, you mm-hmm. know, in mm-hmm. high school, whatever. Mm-hmm. And it was always okay. What's the U.S. or what's the Queen's band going to do? Uh, like the Roy- the the British Army bands, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it's so high level yes. stuff. Yes, and it sounds amazing. When and they always mm-hmm. do the Sousa stuff. Yes, and it always makes me happy as a as an old marching band, uh, hearing all all of the the themes of the armies and stuff mm-hmm, like that, mm-hmm. and watching the drum corps do insane things that you would ever, never think possible yes <gasps> yes yes so after the army you decided to re-up or rekindle your music s- skills right well after i after i after i retired uh from the army that's what i decided to do for my next for my next career i'd managed to keep my skills up over the years and i knew things that i knew things had changed which is why i decided Pardon me to go back to the uh, to go back to school for music business to see exactly because I knew from the time that I had left high school to which was 1983 to when I retired in 19 in 2013. I mean, what has happened in the music industry from then to now? Many things. Right. So I needed to go. I and I was trying to keep up with it, but I knew there was a whole bunch of stuff that I didn't know and it was different. So I went back to Hack for. Uh, Harrisburg Area Community College to learn to learn what I didn't know and to and I went to Berkeley I went to Berkeley to uh, just do some just do a few courses in their guitar specialist program just to just to see what was what what's happening now what what are what are what are guitar players and musicians doing now what do they have to do now what's the skill level uh, what are the what are the songs you need to know uh, that type of thing and then of course the technology and how to how to get out and gig and do music oriented things in the 21st century so uh, that was and that's how we eventually stumbled into actually having a business I never intended to have a business I thought I was gonna play would play and do recording and either do session work and and do some sound engineer stuff Uh, I never expected to actually have a business where we were actually making products ourselves and selling them. We kind of, as time went on through school, through my classes and people that you run into, I said, hey, wait a minute, this is, this is actually a possibility and actually a good thing for another income stream. And so uh, that's how, we, that's, that's how we, we got into what we're doing now. And what are you guys doing now? We'll, go, we'll, we'll have another episode detailing this a bit more, but an overview. An overview. Well, uh, on the business side, what we do is we make we make custom accessories, and uh, custom accessories for and equipment for musicians and the people who love them. So, uh, it actually came out of the fact that I am I was always good with my hands and a maker. My my grandfather was a master craftsman cabinet maker, mm. so he taught me a lot of that skill. And then I learned a ton of different skills through my time in the Army. That's one of the things you'll do in the military is if you pay attention, you're going to learn a whole lot of things that you otherwise might not have 
learned. So I'm, I'm able to build, I'm able to build things on a lot of different levels. And when I would see I had a problem or something, Hey, I'm not going to buy that. I can make that. So Skill to have. Right, you know, so I, you know, I need a, I need a neck stand for my guitar when I'm working on it. Well, I'm not going to go buy that when I've got, I've, I've got two two by fours, and I've got two by two by fours and a saw. I've got a, go I've got a neck stand. Yeah. So, uh, and I said, well, wait a minute. Uh, here's where if I've got this problem, somebody else has this problem. I can, I can give them my solution to this, and probably at a better price. So that's those are the kind of things we do. Uh, I hack, uh, I hack old radios, old. E- old antique radios into guitar amplifiers or convert them to Bluetooth speakers so you can have the old vintage radio that will play the new stuff or you can play your guitar or your or your, your harmonica or your saxophone through that old vintage radio and you have a unique sound. Uh, my wife gave us the idea of, uh, came up with the idea of using old pianos for source material so we make, uh, we make things out of, we make key racks out of the old piano keys. We cut them down, put them together, and hang it on your wall and hang your keys on your, pia- on your piano keys. Uh, we, make, uh, we make cigar ashtrays out of the, out of the wood from the piano. Uh, she also makes, uh, she makes jewelry out of the hammers from the piano, you know, for earrings or, mm-hmm. or necklaces, that type of thing. And uh, so those are any, anything like we can come up with that looks like it might be cool for something that's a musician or, mu- or music-oriented, they might think it's cool to have, uh, to whether as a piece of jewelry or as a tchotchke on your, uh, on your, on your, uh, on your mantelpiece or whatever, or a solution to a problem. Like, you know, you need a chair when you're out on a gig sitting down if you're a singer-songwriter. I designed a chair that your legs don't fall asleep. It's easy to carry. It folds up. Made the seats made out of memory foam, so we make those things and then we we sell them at, at uh, craft shows and online. That's awesome. So, in regards to your music, then mm-hmm. what do you do now? Do you still do music? Uh, do you still go out and play? Do you still do gigs? Yes, I still play. I still play live. Um, I haven't done session work in a couple of years now because of COVID, but uh, I did some session work while I was at Hack. Which was which was kind of cool, both both in the engineering on the engineering side and playing on on a couple of records, um, and now yes, I play I play in in bars or for private parties. I come up with I I've got some I've got some uh, original music now that I've just started working on over the uh, pandemic. Go figure! Somebody got in the studio and decided to do something original over the pandemic. Go figure, huh? So uh, no one's I've, ever done that. No one's ever done that. <laughs> so. Uh, I've got some. I've got. I've got some original music in the in the pipeline now that I'm going to uh, start to incorporate into my in, into my shows. And yeah, so my my I'm basically my music is uh, a lot of what you call it now is is yacht rock, but it's it's uh, it's a combination of all the different things I've experienced. And I like I like to say you can, I mean, you go from, in one of my sets, you can go from, you can hear the clash all the way to Carlos Santana and Dave Brubeck. I've got all of that in, you'll hear all of that in a, if you hear me play in a set. And speaking of stuff that you've done, we have one of your arrangements of an arrangement of B.B. King's song. Yes. Uh, Help the Poor. Tell me about your thought process, your playing style on this. Um, my playing style is, uh, is definitely, uh, my playing is rooted in the blues. 
for sure. That's where it's based out of. And then we have the rock, and then we have the rock on top of that, and then we have the, and then you have the jazz influences on top of that, with just a little bit of country thrown in. So uh, we play. I guess I guess the best way to say it is I pl- I play I play unexpected melodies with uh, as far as my solo as far as my soloing t- as far as my soloing choices are. It's, it's not that it's it's not that it's too avant-garde, but it's you know I didn't I didn't think I would like that that sound, but it sounds right and I like it and it's a little, a little different. Spice. Right, right. My major influences are uh, are Larry Carlton, Robin Ford, who used to play for uh, Miles Davis. He was a guitar player for Miles Davis when he started. Uh, Carlos Santana, George Benson, and then we go to Eric Clapton, uh, Jimmy Page, of course, uh, and uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan, people like that. So it's a mishmash of all those. And some of the, some of the 80s guys, too, some of those 80s shredders, like uh, Steve Lukather from Toto or uh, Brad uh, Brad Gillis, I think his name is, from uh, Night Ranger. All of that mashed together. All of that is put into this piece of the four.
that was Luther Tyrese. Help the poor. So, where can people find you for, for the future stuff? And I guess they can find you in Lebanon as well. Yes. That's, and that's where we live right now. And uh, you can find me on Facebook at Tyree Guitar. You can find me on Reverb Nation at Luther Tyree Guitar. Also on YouTube at Luther Tyree Guitar. And our MagnaWatt uh, Facebook page is just Google MagnaWatt Music and it will come up. And so tell me more about this stuff in Lebanon that you've been putting together. We've been trying to, I've been working with uh, some of the creative people in Lebanon and uh, at one point with the actual city of Lebanon, in addition to the, uh, the, the Chamber of Commerce and the Lebanon uh, Community of Lebanon Association, to bring live music back to Lebanon. Uh, we're trying to, you know, there's an effort to to re to reinvigorate Lebanon, to bring it back both as a business hub and a culture hub, and uh, they'd like live music. And so I've been working with uh, some of a few of the people that are are leading this charge. They're in city government now. I served with in the military, mm. so uh, we've been trying to uh, get more live music, more live music from around the area to come down to Lebanon to play. We've been working with the venues that are in Lebanon. The restaurants and the and rest basically the restaurants to uh, value live music to have live music and then believe it or not there's a lot of talent in Lebanon itself and we've been working to get those people who play in Lebanon to get them out to play in Lebanon for the different events that happen that in Lebanon so that we can uh, bring Lebanon back bring Lebanon back and the music bring the music brings people people bring more people. Uh, more people, you have more business, and uh, we were having we were having some success right before the pandemic. We had uh, we had uh, live music at lunchtime three days a week. We had uh, live music in the market. Uh, we had live music in the market every first Friday and every Thursday at lunchtime. We had local uh, local artists to Lebanon at every festival they had in Lebanon, and we started to have more uh, people who were based in Lebanon playing at say the downtown lounge. And Timeless Cafe, and then of course uh, the uh, the pandemic shut all that down. So we've we've taken a few steps back, but now we're we're uh, we're getting we're getting uh, lunchtime music started up again, and that'll be uh, hopefully next week we'll get lunchtime music back online, and uh, we've got a few new venues opening up that want want live music. We, what used to be the Lebanon Cafe, what used to be the Legends Cafe is, is, is uh, bringing back live music. So we're getting that back on track. Hopefully we'll be able to do, we'll make it bigger and better than it was before we had to shut down. What are some of the challenges that you're starting to have to face or some of the common challenges that venues might face or li our musicians themselves might face while trying to push this? Well, you've got to, understanding your audience and playing and being able to play what your audience wants to hear. Or sometimes you have to show your audience what they want to hear and play it for them and then, oh yeah, that's what I like. Um, on the other hand, you have the venues that, there's a lot more than just saying you know, as a venue, I just want to have live music. There's licensing issues and all of that and those folks don't, un don't necessarily understand that. And that's one of the things I've been working with them to do since I really, I really don't have a dog in the fight. So I can, as far as, if you pay ASCAP, for example, licensing, I don't get a cut of that. Right. So, and since I went to school and understand how all that licensing works, it's simple for the venue owners to ask somebody like me, what is all entailed? 
in doing this. And I can tell them, and since I have some contacts that I made when I was at school with some of the people in the performing rights organizations, I can call and cut a, and help them broker a deal so if they're a small venue that really can't afford the license, they can pay a smaller fee and still have their coverage, uh, their coverage and have their music. Uh, and so that, and to, and to really make venue owners understand that music is a multiplier. And if you have music, you're going to, you're going to have more people come to your, to your event or your venue, whatever it is. And uh, we did that in the market. We actually had some, we were able to put some numbers to how much more business they had when music was there as opposed to not, because they didn't want to have it initially. And we we figured it out that they got they had a thirty every every vendor in the market had a thirty five percent increase in sales when we had music. That's cool. And we were able to show we were able to show them. I was able to show them on the uh, on numbers. They were they they said what I said here's we've been counting how many people came in. We've listened. We've got your sales. You know we see what your sales are. Here's when the music was, and here's when your you had a boost in sales on these days. Said, so you're, you know, there's 12 vendors in the market, and we're asking for, at that time, we're asking for 80 bucks for an hour and a half for a, for a live musician. I mean, you're telling me five or six bucks a week. You're not going to, you're gonna, not going to throw five or six dollars a week in a kitty to pay somebody to play when it's going to give you 35% more business? Right. <laughs> I was gonna say, hey, you're gonna make way much more yes. than that 80 bucks. Yes. Investment. Yeah. yeah, and like I said, that's 80 bucks, but if you divide 80 by 12, the vendors, every vendor's kicking these what five, six bucks, right? So for five it's or six no bucks, right? For five or six bucks, I'm going to give you thirty five percent more business. Duh. Well, uh, yeah, uh, <laughs> but I mean, so we had to show, we had to show them that, and then they were, they went from we don't want this, we don't want you here, to how many hunting, musicians here? We right, get? hunting me down, hunting me down, hunting me down to find out. I mean, we had one day the guy came, uh, the kid we had playing, uh, because it does happen, you do get a flat tire. Yes. He got a flat. He was coming from Palmyra. He got a flat, and he called me. He says, Luther, I've got a flat. I'll be about 15 minutes late. I said, okay, well, I'll let everybody know. I walked in, and there were people sitting there waiting for the musician, and I thought they, I thought they were going to lynch me. They said, <laughs> they were, where is he? Where is he? I said, he got it. he'll be here. He'll be here. And I'm going, wow, this is a major change from, you know, at that time it was 12 months ago. They didn't want us here. Now I've got these same people who are sitting here asking me where the musician is. That's incredible, man. Over all of this, what is one of the best pieces of advice you think you've ever been given? Hmm. That's a, I've been, I have been given so much great advice over the years. So I'll stick with advice as far as, uh, Advice as far as music goes, it yeah. goes back to what, what we were talking about earlier. Like, it's not necessarily the best player that gets the gig. Like, yes, you need to be competent. You need to be competent on your instrument, but you also need to be professional. By that, I mean, again, show up on time, answer people when they email you, be, be easy to work with, be reasonable, have your equipment, and every, have, make sure you handle your business. Make sure everything that has to do with your performance and what you need to do to perform in that venue that you're responsible for is absolutely straight and locked down. And 
be simple and easy to deal with uh, and friendly, nice to deal with, with the venues and the other, your other musicians, and that will get you extremely far. It will get you much farther than just being a great player. Yeah, I was going to say it. Uh, social, so, sociability, is that, that that's even a word. But being able to be a, a good person and, and being able to be a comfortable person to be around is going to get you way more farther than any talent could ever get you. Exactly. And one, I'm going to give one, one alibi comment for that. This is the piece of advice that I was given that turned out to be almost 180 degrees wrong, was doesn't matter what, what your instrument looks like, what kind of an instrument you have, it matters whether or not you can play it. That's not 100% true. Not one. If you have a quality instrument, or if you have an instrument that even doesn't have to be super expensive, but if that instrument is clean and well-maintained, that gives people the impression that you're a really good musician before you ever play the first note. Right. That sets the tone, and I didn't really understand that until it, Happened until it happened to me at an open mic night where I didn't think I was going to be very well welcomed, and they freaked out over my instrument so bad before I ever even touched it. I mean, they thought the case was great. I opened it. I opened the case. And, wow, we're really going to hear something now. Do you see that guitar? Blah 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 blah. And it's I hadn't played one. a note. Say again. Is it the red one? No, it wasn't. It was a uh, no. It was a Taylor. People like that one too. People like that red one too. Uh, that's a Gretsch. But uh, it was a Taylor. It was a Taylor T5 with the sunburst. Oh. And of course, it was Taylor, and, and it's in the it's in an alligator skin case, right? Oh. And wow. so with you know, and you come in and they saw that case, and then I opened it, and I, and I hadn't even cleaned the thing. As a matter of fact, I had just bought it. I mean, it was brand new off the. It was used. I bought it used off the wall at Guitar Center and took it straight to a gig. And they look, took one look at that thing, and they, wow, we're going to really hear something now. And it is a striking instrument. It's a beautiful guitar. But I was like, they're really going crazy over this instrument. And I haven't played a note. Right. And I said, okay, that means I've been doing the right thing all these years to make sure, you know, your instrument, it's clean. It's well-made. You know, it's not all beat up. But if it's beat up, it needs to look purposely beat up, not that you haven't taken care of it. Aesthetically beat up. Right, right. right. So... So that is that was that was quite the revelation for me. And that goes the same for uh, attire as well. Which yes. A lot of musicians don't realize you're as a musician. Your brand is the way you look and the instrument you play, mm -hmm. right? So you have to. You can't come in somewhere. Granted, if you're like a DJ, yeah, you can come in with like street clothes because you know the wedding isn't happening yet yeah. or or whatever, <laughs> right? But for a gig, you you unless it's your style, unless you're a, you're playing the hippie beach music, mm -hmm, then you can come mm -hmm. in whatever you like for that mm -hmm, music. Mm -hmm. uh, but if you're going to play like a blues or a rock or whatever, you have to kind of semi-dress the part. Exactly. Because that gives them the first inclination of, oh, they actually know what they're doing, yeah. and oh, I'm actually in for a treat tonight. They look the part, yep. and then even if you look the part, you don't have to necessarily play the part 100%. Exactly. Because... It's a it's a half battle. It's the half what you play, half what you look and what you look like, right? Yes, yes. Because they're not even listening. Many times they're not listening one hundred percent of the time. Exactly. Anyway, I mean they can't. Right. So I mean, especially in a bar, it's different when you're at a concert. You're at a concert, and you're the main attraction. But if you're in a bar, they're not list. They they can't be listening the whole time. 
yeah. uh, listening completely the whole time. And you know, not only that, you know, and you that, that's to your advantage because if you really do something wrong or if you really do something great, you're going to see a reaction. Yes. So if you really hit something, people all of a sudden stop and look at you. You know, you play a play a certain song or you play a certain phrase, and it was really good. And pe- you can see, okay, that went over well. And if you drop a clunker, which we've all done, mm-hmm. and it's really bad and really noticeable, you'll know. So on that note, what's one of the funniest things or worst things that ever happened to you during a gig? Worst thing that ever happened to me during a gig was that uh, I was we were in high school. We were playing at a uh, at the community, the the local community day. Really excited because one of our was a paying gig and all this, and was in, on the stay on a big stage in front of a lot of people, and uh, was talking to one of the organizers. Uh, we had done a couple of songs, and they wanted us to. Uh, they wanted us. I forget exactly what they wanted us to do, but they were. Ta- I was talking to one of the organizers, and I was. I bent down at the front of the stage, I had my guitar across my chest, and one of the other organizers thought it'd be real fun to twist the tuning keys on my guitar while I was focused on talking to this guy. And I didn't really, he did it really gently because I didn't really feel it. And I got back up to play the next song and don't you know, it was a Deep Purple, it was Highway Star by Deep Purple, okay? Not the song you want to start out out of tune on, okay? And so I start to play this song and I can't understand why nothing sounds right. And... It turned out this guy had he had gone down there and he twisted just because he thought it was just because he thought it would be funny. I'm like, you thought that'd be real funny, right? And we were we were high school kids. It was different if we were like totally we were high school kids. Like, and you thought that would be funny, huh? Like, I'm gonna I'm gonna never hear the end of that for the rest yes. of my high school career. Yes, yes, and uh, I yeah I was I said, oh, so this is this is the way this is gonna go. okay okay so last question Mm -hmm. what is one thing that you know now that you wish you had known when you first started and this can be related to life in general because you learn a lot of life in the military Mm -hmm. Uh, one thing I I wish I wish I had had I wish I'd had the confidence in my uh, in my overall in my overall abilities for what the things that I can do, I wish I had had the confidence that I that that I was as good as I was. I wish I had I, I'd understood that and leaned and lean into it and really tried to be even better than I was mm-hmm. at the time. Uh, a lot of times, particularly in the military, uh, they there's because the competition is so fierce, and for so many years, so many years in the beginning of my in the early part of my career, we were not at war. With the exception of, you know, you would go, there was Panama and then it was Desert Storm. That was a short period of time. For the most part, you weren't, you didn't have that urgency of you've really got battle to fight. And so there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of institutional or, uh, or uh, internal politics that they play. And that's what they do. They try to, if you're really good, if you're really good at something, they say, okay, well, you're not. Our guy over here is really better. Mm. And so uh, it's hard not to internalize that. And same with it, the same with anything you do. Uh, with with anything you do, and, and to a certain extent, there was I had that issue with music as well. So when I actually when I actually had a had some experience and was able to look at things in a in a broader sense and and see life in a broader sense and realize, hey, wait a minute, just because this person said this person over here who has a vested interest in it says I'm not good, or that all the work I've put in really hasn't paid off, 
That doesn't mean it's true. Right. And I wish, I wish I had understood that and owned that earlier on. Absolutely. Know your value. Right. You're the only one who knows you the best. Right. Take your criticisms if they're valid, for sure. But know your worth and don't undersell yourself. Don't undercut yourself. Yeah. Take yourself at, and this is this might be hard for you to do in some aspects too. Take yourself at face value and know this is who you are. Exactly. For better or for worse. Exactly. And make sure, not to not not saying to be jaded, but make sure you know that the person that this criticism or whoever has this comment that that's coming out, whoever that's coming out of, make sure you understand if, and if so, what their vested interest in it is. I mean, if you're competing with Joe Blow's son at the at this gig or in the Battle of the Bands and his dad is judging the Battle of the Bands, well, guess who's not going to win the Battle of the Bands no matter how well you play? Right. And if that guy says you can't play, well, does he have a, does he have a reason he might be saying that? As opposed to somebody that, that is just being objective, mm -hmm. you know. Like again, I wish I trusted people. I had trusted people that I thought had my best interest at heart, and they didn't. If you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to follow Luther Tyree at all of his places. Yeah. Luther yeah. Tyree Guitar. Yeah, Tyree Guitar. Facebook is Tyree Guitar. Reverb Nation is Luther Tyree Guitar. YouTube is Luther Tyree Guitar, and our Magnawatt Music Company. Uh, uh, you can just Google Magnolot Music Company and all of our social media will come up for Magnolot. That's T-Y-R-E-E. That's correct. If you have enjoyed this episode of the Story Podcast, please be sure to like, subscribe, follow, comment, share with your friends. If, if you're on Apple or Spotify, please be sure to rate us and review us there. That helps us get up in the rankings and be exposed to newer people. With all that said, I hope you guys have a wonderful day. See you guys later. Bye.